Well, join me in Genesis chapter one. We're gonna be starting there, but uh, before we do, you can see on the bulletin that we are stepping out of John's uh, gospel for a week. We'll return there uh, next week, but we are stepping out of that. The elders thought it would be appropriate to uh, focus our attention this morning on answering one particular question. One question, and that question is this. What does the Lord expect from us as his children? What does the Lord expect from us in regards to our finances, whether we have little or whether we have much? What does faithfulness look like in that area of our life? What does biblical financial stewardship look like? And it's certainly an appropriate topic given the day in which we live with inflation rising, with discretionary money decreasing. It's on the news, isn't it? Supply chains being broken, household budgets tightening, there's job losses, there's financial uncertainty. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you saw even here at the church, uh, the budget shortfall that, that we're facing, but let me be quick to say that the way you have responded as a church body has been tremendous. Uh, you have responded in unity together. You have responded in a love uh, for this ministry, a care for the staff. There's a generosity that we have seen over the last few weeks. And so we as, as elders, as a staff, we praise the Lord for that. That's the Lord working uh, within you, within us. We praise the Lord for that response. But indeed, money has been on our minds. Money has been on the news. For some, it's a concern. Uh, for others, it's led to anxiety. And so it's appropriate to think about this issue of finances biblically, rightly, and do that together. And when we turn to the scriptures, what we find is that the Bible has a lot to say uh, by either principle, application, or even illustration. The Bible has a lot to say when it comes to money. In fact, Jesus spoke more about money than any other topic in the Bible. He always is using this as an illustration at the very least. How are we to handle our earthly treasures? We see 16 of Christ's 38 parables in one way deal with finances. You can broaden this out. You find that there are more than 2,000 references, again, either by principle or illustration, 2,000 references that has to deal with wealth or property. And the simple reason is the principle that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6. Our relationship to our finances, our relationship to our wealth is one of, if not the greatest litmus test when it comes to the condition of our heart. And if you've been in Awana, you've memorized this verse, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Heart, the mission control center of your life, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our checkbook, our credit card statement, that's a window into our heart, our desires, what we value, what we cherish. As we look at some of these principles this morning, we're going to see that our relationship to our wealth actually shows our faith. It shows our humility before the Lord. It shows whether or not we value eternal reward. It shows how much we prize the gospel. 
Jesus is right. Hopefully I don't have to say that here. Jesus is right. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to notice three biblical principles. This is going to be a theology, a biblical theology of finances. We're going to start in Genesis 1. We're going to work our way through. Three biblical principles when it comes to our wealth. We can call these wisdom principles. These principles that provide a framework for how we are to relate to our possessions, our finances. Again, a biblical theology of money. Let's begin in Genesis chapter one. Wisdom principle number one. Wisdom principle number one. It's simple, yet it is foundational. It sets the stage for everything else. Principle number one. In humility, we must recognize our financial stewardship. In humility, we must recognize our financial stewardship. This is where the Bible begins, Genesis 1. In the beginning, God is there, nothing brings him into existence, nothing is sustaining him, and what does he do? In the beginning, God creates, and not just some things, but the heaven, heavens and the earth. This is the necessary starting point. First one is clear, God is the creator and thus by application, he is the owner of everything that we see, everything we hold, everything we can touch, any possession we might have, anything that exists, it's God's. From the heavens to the earth, everything in between belongs to him. So we own nothing We own nothing. God owns everything. Now, no doubt in our pride, kind of rubs us the wrong way. We want to believe that our possessions are our possessions. Our finances are ours. But the truth of the matter is, whatever belongings, possessions, property, portfolios, time, energy, investments, whatever it is that's been given to you, that's been entrusted, better word, entrusted for your care. We are only stewards, we're managers. And as a steward, we will be held responsible. We will be held responsible by God, who's the creator and the owner, will be held responsible by him with what we do with his goods, and his property. Continue in Genesis 1, verse 7. God made the expanse. God owns the sky. He owns the oxygen we breathe. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. He owns every vegetable we might eat. Verse 16. God made the two great lights. He owns the sun and the moon. He owns all solar power. I love how verse 16 ends. I always love these side notes. Oh, and by the way, he made the stars also. The the billions and trillions of stars, by the way, those are his too. He owns the universe. Verse 21, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed and every winged bird. He owns every fish in the sea that flies or fish in the sea and bird that flies. Fish don't, don't fly. 
But if they did, God would own them, okay? Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth and the cattle and everything that creeps on the ground. That's every animal that belongs to him. Every fabric, all of our clothes, fabric from those animals, all the meat that we consume, those are all his. We're even God's possession. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. You don't even own yourself. So he's the creator, he's the owner, he's the master of everything that exists without exception. That's chapter one, which then transitions in chapter two, and the transition now moves from God's ownership to man's stewardship. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man. God has every right to do this. Every right. God owns the man. He doesn't need to ask the man for permission of what he's going to do with him. He doesn't have to ask the man for advice. Man is his. He can put him wherever he chooses. God's choice is this, to put him into the Garden of Eden for this purpose, to cultivate it and keep it. So God is creator, man is cultivator. God is owner, man is manager and steward. That's the principle here. And Adam knew very well that he did not own the garden in which he was placed. He understands that. He has no impression that the garden of Eden belonged to him. In fact, God gives him commands of what to do in the garden and what not to do. Adam knew his role. He was the nurturer, the caretaker, not the owner. That's what makes the sin of chapter three so heinous. Adam steps out of being the creature. He's gonna be the creator, the owner, the master. In this theme of God's ownership of all things, it becomes something that runs, a thread that runs throughout the scriptures. The application I take from that is is this. We need a constant reminder that we are not the owner of what we have. Job 41, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God says. Everything that's mine. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, from things to people. Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, the world is mine and all it contains. We need this reminder because the knee-jerk default will be what? No, that's mine. I earned it. I bought it. Psalm 89, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You, why? You have founded them. Psalm 104, the earth is full of your possessions. Deuteronomy 10, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth, and all that is in it. 
The prophet says, the silver is mine. Well, the prophet quoting God, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Of course, we could be tempted to say, well, God's created all those things, but again, I've worked for my finances. I've invested well. It's my decision. I've earned what I have. Well, Deuteronomy 8 speaks rather directly to that idea. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Proverbs 10, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. We cannot even claim ownership of our energy or self-discipline or ingenuity, our work ethic. That's God's. He's the one who gives that to us. 1 Chronicles 29, 12. Both riches and honor come from God. It's from his hand, hand of blessing. It lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. So the principle is simple. It begins in Genesis 1, transitions into Genesis 2. It's the thread that runs throughout all of the scriptures. You own nothing. God owns everything. We are managers. We are stewards. Like Adam, we have been called to cultivate and keep that which the Lord has entrusted to our care. And again, as a steward, our one responsibility, you can mark this, our one responsibility is to use those entrusted resources as the owner of the resources intends. That's our responsibility. Boil it all down. That's why being a faithful steward is so essential to the Christian life. We're to act on God's behalf, make decisions that reflect the owner's priorities, his goals, his concerns, while the owner is absent. Now that's general. Let's bring this now specific to the Christian Because the one who owns all things, yes, he is the creator, Genesis 1. He is the creator. He's the transcendent holy God. That is true. But for the believer, it's much more personal than that. For us who are Christ's, we are stewards of our redeemer's possessions. We have been what? Bought with a price. We're to steward our Savior's resources, the one who loves us, the one who has sealed us with his spirit forever. So this is where a biblical theology of wealth begins, humbly recognizing our rightful place and joyfully accepting the fact that we own nothing and God owns everything and we are not seeking then to usurp the owner but rather we're striving to mirror the owner's goals, the owner's priorities with the possessions he has entrusted to our care. And thus, whenever we find ourselves thinking like owners, which we will do, whenever we find ourselves thinking like owners and making financial decisions like sole proprietors, And holding on to our possessions, 
portfolios, investments, time, holding on to those things with closed fists. I own it. That's mine. That should immediately raise a red flag for us. Because the love of money is beginning, beginning to creep in. We're forgetting our place. That's the deceitful weeds of wealth, the desire for other things that Jesus warns us about. Those are beginning to take roots within our heart. It's the first wisdom principle. In humility, we must recognize our financial stewardship. Now, it leads into a second wisdom question and principle here. It's a necessary question. Because if the Lord owns everything, which he does, and we are merely stewards, which we are, the question is this, what does the owner expect from us? If we're to mirror him, what does the owner expect from us? What does the owner call us to do with the resources entrusted to us? Here's the answer. He expects us to, in faith, in faith, invest in eternity Invest in eternity. That's the second wisdom principle. In faith, we must invest in eternity. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Don't shy away from speaking about money. Again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Instruct those who have that wealth to not be conceited, heart issue, conceited, or to fix their hope. It's a gospel issue on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's a stewardship issue. Heart issue, gospel issue, stewardship issue. Everything's from him. Where's your hope? Instruct them, Paul says, instruct them to what? To store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. It's an eternity issue. Use your temporary wealth now for an eternal investment so that, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's a sanctification issue, glorification issue. So understand what Paul's saying. Our stewarding of God's resources during our temporary life here on earth will determine something later. It will determine our everlasting reward. It's a one-to-one correlation that Paul is drawing here. Our financial investments now determine our everlasting yield later. Always, our obedience or faithfulness now determines our reward later. Within that, financial stewardship, one-to-one correlation that Paul's drawing. Now, let's ask Paul, where did you get this idea from? What are you talking about, Paul? And if Paul was here, you'd say, well, have you forgotten Jesus's words? Notice the similarities here. Paul's statement, verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this world not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. That's taken from Jesus' words, Matthew 13. Jesus' warning about wealth, warning about the deceitfulness, the uncertainty, 
the shifting sands of money, of wealth. Be warned, that can creep in and choke out the gospel, can make it unfruitful. Paul's just drawing this off of Jesus' words. Both of them are warning us. Wealth will call us to do something. It will call us to trust in it. It will call us to fix our hope upon it. To find our security in it. But both Paul and Jesus remind us, do not be deceived. Wealth always will promise what it cannot provide. It assures a security it cannot deliver. There's another similarity between Paul and Jesus. That's in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 6. Instruct them, Paul says, instruct them to store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Again, that's Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, in the future. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. And both Paul and Jesus are in agreement. When it comes to our finances, and let's stop thinking in that way, more accurate, when it comes to the finances God has graced us with, entrusted to us, there's only two options, two options. We can either invest in the earthly, the temporary. The warning, though, that that will all be eaten up one day. Or we can invest in that which is eternal and lasting and secure. So the only two options. Invest for the moment, invest for the now, or invest for the future, invest for the lasting. And there's a word picture. It's a word picture that both Jesus and Paul use here. It's taken from that phrase, store up. And store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation, Paul. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Jesus. Thetarizo is the Greek word. Thesaurus is the idea. A treasury of words. It's a word picture. It's of laying things out horizontally as one would stack coins. Anyone have a paper route when they were younger? I had a paper route. I had, I had the, the best paper route ever. My father would do it every day for me and then give me the money. It's great. What would I do on Friday after we collected the money? I would take all the, it was $1.80 a week. I would take all the money and I would stack up all the nickels and all the pennies, right, and all the quarters. That's the word picture here. You're stockpiling, amassing and Jesus and Paul say that there's bad stockpiling and there's good stockpiling. There's bad investment, there's good investment. The bad investment is using your finances to further that which is earthbound or temporary, self-centered, self-focused. All that's unstable, unsure. 
Again, go back to what Jesus warns. It's where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Paul uses the word uncertain for that investment. It's like investing your wealth in a brand new car, driving it off the lot and thinking you're going to gain money for it. Not a good investment. And again, you travel through the scriptures, Proverbs 23, wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. It's always out of our reach. It will never satisfy, though it promises to satisfy. Again, Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make sure it's not here on earth. So what is the key then? If we're going to invest in eternity, what is the the key to financial stewardship for eternity? The key is to change our investment criteria. Adjust our investment strategy. John Piper writes this. Jesus is not against investment. He's against bad investment. Namely, setting your heart on the comforts and securities that money can afford in this world. Money is to be invested for eternal yields in heaven. I know we think we have moved so far beyond uh, those, those opening stories, those histories of the Old Testament. You know, the ones where there's idol worship. They're all chiseling their idol and then they're worshiping it. And we think, well, we're so beyond that. We don't chisel any idols. You know what we do? We print them. We print them. We put the, the face of someone on the money and that's worth something. And so often we can bow down to that. Think that will satisfy John Wesley said, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. It's the new investment criteria. This is what the gospel of Jesus does. It frees us from the love of earthly treasures. It delivers us from finding our identity in worldly possessions. It looses the chains to the fleeting You know the hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and what's the result? The things of the earth will grow what? Strangely dim. Why? Why? Because we will begin to see this world in the light of of his glory and grace. Notice that phrase, again, that Jesus uses treasures in heaven. Treasure in heaven, another word, picture. The picture describes a gold box. It's a treasure box. It's filled with precious jewels, metals, goods. But it's a treasure box in heaven. It's reserved for the believer in glory. So what's Jesus referring to? You could even think of crowns, right? We're going to be granted crowns in heaven. What's the point with that? Is it it a literal box, literal crowns? Well, the treasure chest here is indicative of future reward. These are rewards that Christ will personally present to his people when we stand before him at the Bema seat of Christ. 
He will reward us for our faithfulness now. Not just with finances, but faithfulness in general. Obedience in general. We stand before the Bema. Christ then grants us our eternal reward of joy. Of joy forever. In your right hand, there are pleasures and joy forevermore. We'd be granted a capacity to enjoy him forever. And both Jesus and Paul, according to them, not every treasure chest, not every capacity to enjoy God, our Savior, will be the same size. There will be small jewelry boxes given to some, medium-sized treasure chests given to others. Some will receive entire treasure rooms presented to them. That's the picture. And what determines the size of our treasure box? In this case, at least in part, it's how we've invested in eternity. And note this, this eternal reward theme that also is traced throughout the scriptures. Obedience now, faithfulness now will bring joy, greater joy later. Luke 6, give, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. It will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You give now, you'll receive later. Above and beyond what you gave now. For by your standard, here's the correlation, but... For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. By your standard of measure now, it will be given to you later. It's that correlation. What you do with your finances here on earth will determine what you receive later in glory. Again, the capacity of joy forever in Christ. 2 Corinthians 9. I say this, you sow sparingly, also reap sparingly, reap at the bema seed of Christ. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's later, it's not now, it's later. Why? Because God loves what kind of giver? Cheerful giver. It's a general principle, invest in eternity. But how do we do that specifically? How do we do that? Again, what's the criteria Christ will use when he determines the size of our treasure box of joy? Let me give you three criteria here. This isn't one of them. This is just a statement. It will not be based upon whether or not we give away all of our finances. Please know that. That's not the criteria. That's poor stewardship. That would be presuming upon God. In fact, that's not stewardship. What are the criteria? Well, there's three here. Number one, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven when we provide for our family. When we provide for our family. Yes, that's an eternal matter. Yes, that's a gospel issue. First Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Provide for others, specifically those whom we love, 
who have been given to us. We meet our family needs, not necessarily wants, but needs. That might mean at times letting our own desires, our own personal wants go. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven when we provide now for our family. Second, we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven when we prudently save and wisely invest. Save and invest. That's what you see in the book of Proverbs. Invest wisely. Save your money prudently. Proverbs 21, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but the foolish man swallows it up. The wise man lays aside some of his wealth. He saves it, why or when? For the future. But the foolish man spends everything he has, everything. See that with Joseph. You save now for lack later. This means curbing our cravings, postponing our desires. Maybe don't go through the checkout stand, all those little things that they want you to buy right away. We're looking at the real needs, real needs above frivolous wants. Proverbs 30, again, it's the same principle. The faithful steward models the ant, the ant who prepares their food in the summer. They save in the summer because they know winter's coming. So wisely invest, prudently save. And through that, you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because it's an obedience issue. You're obeying God's word in that. There's a third way. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Number three here. We give to the Lord's work for his glory. And we do it as an act of worship. We give to the Lord's work for his glory as an act of worship. This leads then into wisdom principle number three. Give to the Lord in his gospel work. I love what Randy Alcorn has said. He writes, the act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God and not about us. That's worship, isn't it? Turning the attention away from ourselves to one who's greater and bigger and better. It's saying, I am not the point. He is the point. He does not exist for me. I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. I love this. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. Giving to the Lord, holding our finances before the Lord with an open hand is one of the primary ways God has called his children to worship him. We see this in the Old Testament, Exodus 35. This has to do with the tabernacle. Moses speaks to the congregation. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. But note the key statement here. Whoever is of a willing heart. It goes back to Jesus' principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a heart issue. 
Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze. Can trace that phrase, whoever has a willing heart, can trace that through Exodus over and over. Bring to the Lord. Worship the Lord through this offering. When you transition into the New Testament, the principle is the same. The only difference is that we are not to give any more to the temple or the tabernacle. No, we now give to the Lord through the church. Remembering that the church is the primary means God uses for disseminating his gospel. It's the church. I will build my church. The Great Commission has been given to the church, not to individuals, but to the church. And so this is why we see Acts chapter 4. Believers were laying their giving at the apostles' feet. They were bringing their money and laying it at the apostles' feet. Again, an act of worship, a giving through the church. Again, general principle. But specifically, what does this look like? What does giving through the church look like for us? How do we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven through this? There's four characteristics for this kind of giving. Four characteristics. First of all, we worship the Lord by giving generously. Worshipful giving is generous giving. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Again, we read it earlier, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Give bountifully. You understand Acts 20, 35 is not just for the Christmas season. It is more blessed to give than receive. That's every day. Now, you have to answer the question, how much is generous? That's specific for you. It's that heart issue, that willing heart issue. There's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question, how much is generous? Don Whitney has said this, God does not send you a bill. The church does not send you a monthly statement. Now, if you want one, we can send you one. We won't do that. Church doesn't send you a monthly statement. Why? Because this is an act of worship. It's not under compulsion. Love to God should motivate giving to God. How much you give should reflect how much you love God. God wants you to give, not as a formality or an obligation, but as an overflow. Just like worship on a Sunday morning is an overflow of our love for the Lord and our obedience to him throughout the week, so too is our giving to him. It's an overflow of our love for him. So for some, that might mean 10% giving. Others might be less than that. Others, it may be more than that. Worshipful giving is not a certain percentage It's an attitude of the heart. It's an attitude of the heart. But mark 1 Corinthians 6 again. Not giving is not an option. Not giving is not an option. Again, we worship through giving. And so we need to ask that question. Again, this is specific for each and every one of us. 
Am I giving generously? Am I giving big-heartedly? That's the word. Or am I pinching my pennies when it comes to God? Am I a steward or a miser? Am I a steward or a miser to the one who has blessed me with everything that I have? Worshipful giving is generous giving. Number two. Number two, worshipful giving is joyful giving. Worshipful giving is joyful giving. Again, 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. That's not worship. No, God loves a cheerful giver, a joyful worshiper. Think of Psalm 51, where David says, you don't want the sacrifices. You don't want the sacrifices. Why? Because they're not coming with the right heart. No, you want the broken heart, the contrite spirit. And so worshipful giving then is not hesitating, it's not reluctance, it's free giving, it's glad giving. And joyful giving from a willing heart. It's looking at an offering as a way to praise and exalt our Savior. Number three, third principle for worshipful giving. Number three, worshipful giving is intentional giving. Intentional giving. Proverbs 3, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Reminds me of when I was a youth pastor and we were talking about giving through the church and one of the students came up to me, he goes, let me tell you the way I give to the church. I said, man, this gotta be good. Don't you love it when students come up to you and say, let me tell you how I do it. Like, yeah, this is gonna be great. Just record it for them, like for 10 years later to show it to them. He said, this is how I do it. I give 10% of everything that's left over at the end of the week. Like, yeah, that's probably not the way to do it. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your, your produce. It's intentional. You're, you're looking forward to that. On the first day of the week, and that would be Sunday, 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save so that no collections be made when I come. Paul says, prepare, give, prepare for when I come. It's not a hit or miss. It's not according to how you feel on that day, necessarily. It does not even depend on whether you were there when the offering was received. As if we could take time off from worship wasn't there, don't need to worship. Worship's a, an everyday deal. It's intentional giving. And then number four here, again, what does worshipful giving look like? Worshipful giving is quiet giving. It's quiet giving. When you give, Jesus says, do not sound a trumpet before you so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So you can see a couple of these themes coming together. There's reward, there's heart issue. Don't sound the trumpet. This is your worship unto the Lord. We give not to be noticed by men. We give out of a love for our Savior. 
This is how we worship our Lord through giving. It's generous, it's joyful, it's regular, it's quiet. Some more principles that we could draw out throughout scriptures, obviously, but these are the three main wisdom principles when it comes to our wealth. In humility, we must recognize our stewardship. In faith, we must invest in eternity. And in worship, we must give to the Lord and his gospel work. It's a humility issue. It's a faith issue. And it's a worship issue. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me close with this quote. It is very important for Christians living in affluent countries to understand the test of earthly riches. The great temptation is to keep it all for ourselves. And the more we accumulate, the greater our desire to acquire even more. Isn't that the truth? Our heart becomes tied to our riches and they become our treasure. Sadly, we do not see the essence of the test to which we are being submitted. God wants to see whether we obey him or we follow our own appetites for more riches, hoarding them all to ourselves. Meanwhile, we are tragically unaware that in this manner, our riches on earth become our poverty in heaven. It's an eternal issue. It's a joy issue later. So what should our relationship then to wealth, finances be? Must be humble, must be in faith, and it must be in an act of worship. Father, we thank you that your word is clear and we thank you even for the way you have designed rewards and glory. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised to reward us. That's from your hand of grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are owner and we submit to you. You are the master of all things. Master of us, the owner of us, our redeemer. And so I pray that you would break our pride and our attachment to this world because it is strong. We know that. Break our loves for the temporal and free us. Free us to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth cannot destroy, thieves cannot steal. Give us, Lord, a greater desire for joy in you than in anything else. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.